Welcome back to Outside the System. Today's episode is with Nick Batia, the founder of the Bitcoin Layer and the author of Layered Money. We spent a good amount of time in this episode talking about the foundations of money, monetary hierarchies, historical money like gold, and where Bitcoin fits in. We also spoke about Nick's opinions on Bitcoin versus Ethereum, as well as how Bitcoin's fee structure compares to other forms of base layer money. If you haven't read Layered Money, I highly recommend it. You can find a link in the show notes. As always, if you're enjoying the show, a share on social or review on Spotify or Apple is super helpful in spreading the word. And if you're getting value from outside the system, you can also support us financially using Bitcoin on Fountain or any other podcast player that supports podcasting 2.0. Let's get into the episode. Nick, thanks so much for joining me on Outside the System today. Thanks for having me on, Neil. Yeah, so I came across you uh, through Layered Money, which is your your first book, I believe. Uh, yeah, that's right. And, and I don't actually remember how I came across it. Maybe it was a tweet or I heard about it on a podcast or something, but I read it probably in pretty early on, I think, near when it came out. And um, maybe we start there, like the concepts from that book. I thought it was fascinating because you often hear... You know, I probably have my camp in two, my my feet in two camps. You know, I I spend a lot of uh, time listening to like Bitcoin podcasts and with the Bitcoin maxis. But then I also, because I'm in tech as my career, I do interact a lot of you know the crypto people, quote unquote, right, and the altcoins and stuff. And so I was always trying to like figure out how to merge these two worlds. It's like I don't understand. You know, it feels like both groups are smart. I don't really understand what's going on here. Uh, and your concept of layered money uh, actually brought a lot of this into focus for me. Of course, another layer being dollars um, and the, the sort of fiat economy. So maybe let's start there with layered money because I think there's so many great concepts in it. Yes. Yeah, so the concept of layered money is to illustrate that money takes many forms and the forms that money takes don't just exist randomly with each other but they actually fall into a ranking and the ranking is derived from a couple places one is the balance sheet that money comes from like which financial financial institution is the money coming from or which financial institution issues the money that's one place where rank can come from and another place where rank can come from is price relationship so for example when we see um the argentine peso trade in the market there's a black market rate and then there's a uh, a government rate right both of those rates are versus what gold or bitcoin no it's versus dollars and so there's an on the street price for paper dollars to paper pesos and there's a banking rate, which is dollar deposits for Argentine peso deposits. That relationship is a price-based relationship. And it basically means that the Argentine currency falls underneath the dollar in the ranking of types of money. So money is ranked. Money falls into a hierarchy. And that hierarchy concept is one that I borrowed from Perry Merling, a finance professor, and he's written about this idea of hierarchy of balance sheets and the hierarchy of financial instruments, as well as institutions uh, for over a decade. I adapted that and turned it into a history of hierarchy, as well as incorporating Bitcoin and digital currency to start thinking about where will these digital assets or digital instruments rank versus each other in the future how how did you get into this kind of work like were you doing this type of analysis pre-bitcoin or did bitcoin spark some of these thoughts for you i was doing this type of analysis pre-bitcoin so my background is in investment management and specifically interest rates now i've been a student of interest rates since 2008 10, 11, and following rates for even longer than that. But my thesis around understanding 
the relationship between the Federal Reserve, the U.S. banking system onshore, and the U.S. banking system offshore. That relationship and that dynamic is something that I have studied and researched before I got into Bitcoin. Then once I entered Bitcoin and naturally gravitated toward research, that's just who I am and what I do. Uh, I traded treasuries as a profession, as a practitioner, but the dominant activity as a trader is researching the market itself anyway and trying to understand what the asset class is going to do. So I took that framework, applied it to Bitcoin, and out popped a research framework that integrates both the traditional landscape in money as well as uh, the original concepts within Bitcoin. What led you to Bitcoin in the first place? I'm kind of curious because I do find... um... Well, and this is my own personal bias because I think I come from a tech background. And so a lot of the people that I interact with came to Bitcoin via tech and there's like a you know long running intersection there. I do find a lot of folks in financial management or investment management tend to be a little less pro Bitcoin and that could be personality driven. That could be um, just, you know, they're closer to the existing monetary system potentially you know, it, 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 it could be one way, you know, I don't know the reason, right, why, why that is. Um, but I have found a lot of folks, I, I live in New York, so I know quite a few people in the finance industry, the receptiveness to Bitcoin is still almost treated more as like a stock, right? Like, oh, it's going up or down, it's about the price action, as opposed to the, I think what you claim in layered money and what I've seen you talk about on Twitter and other interviews this potential shift in the whole um, structure of the monetary system that seems to potentially be underway. So, I mean, I'm curious, both from a personal journey standpoint, you know, how did you land here and and kind of come to these, uh, this thesis? And then, you know, how, maybe the second part of that question can be like how you see colleagues in your, in your industry um, reacting to that thesis. Sure. So, um, let me answer it in, in this way, okay? If once I got into Bitcoin and Bitcoin research, and I started to understand what it was. I got really obsessed with this idea of a new decentralized digital commodity because that was unprecedented and that was the breakthrough of Bitcoin. So when I got into it and I started to allocate to it, write about it, Um, And then I thought about my career. How am I going to integrate Bitcoin into my career as an interest rate trader and strategist? Um, One idea that pops into one's mind and less so mine, but coming externally is, Nick, you got to start a fund, right? Because I'm in investment management, so I understand Bitcoin. So it's like start a Bitcoin fund. And I thought about it, and what would I do in a Bitcoin fund? Go long Bitcoin and then maybe try to time the market a little bit? Would I be involved in multiple coins? No, that's not how I would approach the asset class. And so that begins to answer your second question, which is how do people treat this? Or how are they looking at it? They still are... They are driven by fees, turnover, benchmarked performance, outperformance, and relative performance. These are the main concepts within investment management. And so if your main driver as a business model is relative outperformance, your job is to beat your benchmark and then to beat your peers that are also competing against the same benchmark that you are. Then... Within relative outperformance, if that's your goal, what are you actually trying to do? You're trying to stock pick. You're trying to do credit individual company analysis, individual country analysis, um, an FX overlay strategy where you try to get a sense of where FX is moving around the world and try to get some relative outperformance via that. You're trying to identify where you are in the business cycle. Are rates going up and down and how is that going to affect 
credit conditions in the economy and corporate profits. You see how all of that, it doesn't really mesh with the idea of Bitcoin being a contributor to an overhaul of the monetary system. They're, they're across different mentalities and they're across completely different timeframes as well. In investment management, we're focused on quarterly and annual returns. That's about it. Bitcoin is a 14-year-old technology, and it looks to be on the path to another 14 years of growth and adoption as it spreads across the world. And I'm not saying Bitcoin will die at age 28, but it's clear that Bitcoin is in the early stages or the young stages of its life cycle, right? Internet is in year 50 or so. So that's the way I think about it. And how did I find Bitcoin? Which I know you asked. I found Bitcoin because as a student of the Fed, I was a student of monetary history, understanding that we are in, at that point, year 40 of the fiat experiment. And so one has to have a sense of gold and understanding the role that gold has played throughout history and why it's still around, why the price went back up post-2008 and basically doubled, as and why do countries continue to allocate to gold reserves? All of that was present in my thesis and framework before I landed on Bitcoin. So when I saw Bitcoin, it was an immediate recognition that this is digital gold within my framework of understanding the monetary system. Nothing to do with technology, nothing to do with altcoins or startups that are in the space that are trying to come up with blockchain technology solutions. None of that mattered and none of it none of it continues to matter to me when I analyze what Bitcoin and what it what it is and what its role is in the future. That's that's fascinating. I have like 10 questions that sprouted off of that, but I'm going to try to keep it organized. Um, so maybe let's take like a step back into history and talk about gold. Uh, why historically has, you know, so you mentioned com- countries allocate to gold even today. So maybe talk a little bit about that. And maybe my understanding is that it, it has been almost like a tether to actual value, but that's because you need I mean, this is my problem with the fiat system and your understanding is much, much deeper than mine, but that without any kind of tether to another commodity price, you kind of have a free flowing, like nobody knows what this is worth. Like, I I mean, you know what it's worth, I guess, from what the market says it's worth, but there's no tether, uh, meaning no exchange to the lowest layer currency, I guess, because you could say all the other currencies are kind of pegged to the dollar, but then what's the dollar pegged to, right? And uh, and then it, I, I don't know, you, you can probably explain this a million times better than me. So I'll let, I'll let you go for it. It comes down to this hierarchy of balance sheets. Again, if you have a monetary instrument, let's say it's a PayPal balance denominated in South African rand. This is just for example, I don't know if PayPal serves customers in South Africa with their local currency, but just for example, okay? So you have a PayPal balance in South African Rand. To get that money into South African Rand paper currency, you would have to settle that PayPal balance to your local bank. That might take one to three days. Then you go to the bank and you uh, go to withdraw the cash. And that might take one minute or it might take 24 hours to be eligible to withdraw that money. Then you take that money, that paper money, and you go to the local uh, Forex dealer and you change that South African Rand paper money for US dollar paper money. Now you have US dollar paper money. So you already had to travel through a few layers to get from your Rand PayPal balance to paper dollars. And then once you have those paper dollars, how do you know that those paper dollars are going to be able to buy you the same amount of food or petroleum, gasoline, cooking fuel the next day? You don't have any assurance, but you have you have a type of money that gives you some certainty relative to your other type of money. And in that way... 
each type of money is anchored to the money that's in the higher order of it. And once you get to the top, which is in this day and age, call it Federal Reserve notes, paper dollars, or U.S. Treasury securities, which are not pieces of paper anymore. They're digital assets that are stored at custodians. That's why treasuries are referred to as the quote-unquote risk-free asset um, because they have the least amount of counterparty risk in the dollar system relative to, let's say, a banking deposit, right? Your checking account is a liability of that bank. And so a U.S. Treasury security has less risk than your checking account. That's why it's called a risk-free security, not that the U.S. government can't default, um, which it can, right? Which it can. And so what, what, what we see here is that the dollar isn't linked to any physical item anymore, but we still see a reconciliation of the dollar versus other assets such as gold, such as real estate, such as such as stocks, which are uh, basically a promise of future cash flow from corporations that are making and producing real things or real services. So all of these real assets, equity, land, gold, you could even count oil or diamonds or other physical things, the dollar still has a reconciliation through the market with these other assets. But in terms of tying the dollar to gold in terms of this is how we measure the value of the dollar today, that is obsolete. That left the framework 50 years ago. But one can still look at dollar versus gold at $35 in 1960s and the dollar at gold at $2,000 today and say, hey, there's a large difference here. The dollar has faced some reconciliation with gold over this time frame, but you can do the same thing with real estate with the S&P 500 and on down the line. And so I, I sorry for the long answer, but gold is a commodity still that has relative value versus fiat currencies, but it's not as it once was. And the dollar does stand on its own in terms of that credit worthiness factor because it doesn't have that explicit price that we measure that we say, oh, the dollar of the value is going up or down today versus this basket of commodities. We only see it versus the price of other uh, currencies like the dollar index, for example. Right, like the dollar is index one and everything else is like relative to the dollar, essentially, even the S&P. I mean, the so what elements of gold historically made it such a useful tool, I guess, for measuring value? And I guess, you know, one one thing that I can think of your, your example of S&P or land versus gold as a as a commodity or as a as a value to peg this against. I mean, the S&P. It could is based on the basket of companies and their growth, and so you could say, okay, the economic growth or decline would impact this. So it's not necessarily a stable value, I guess. Um, and then same thing with land. I guess land has so many variables, like where it's located, what else is near it. I guess there's a lot of variables associated with it. Gold. I mean, I don't know enough about gold, but I would say gold probably mined in like India versus gold in like California is still elemental gold uh, at the end of the day. So it's, you know, I guess, f sort of fungible from that perspective. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe what are the elements that, like what made gold what every society historically seemed to gravitate to? Because it's not like it just popped up in, you know, one place and was exported elsewhere. It seems that it was almost like a universally valued uh, metal throughout history. Yes. So there's a lot to unpack there. Number one is that there's definitely a human interaction with gold that makes it special, that doesn't uh, rely on communication across societies. That's what you're talking about, that somebody that finds gold on the North American continent 5,000 years ago versus someone that finds gold on the African continent 5,000 years ago, both had a similar experience with that item and saw that there was value there. So there's something innate, which is important. But going back to the balance sheet concept of layered money, gold doesn't come from a balance sheet. It comes from the earth. So that's what separates it versus fiat money. And then what separates it versus other types of commodity, like 
salt or iron or copper. There's there are other thing or even timber, right? Timber is a great example because wood has a lot of utility. Both 5,000 years ago and today, there's a lot of utility with wood, right? Back in the day, it was fuel. Now it's building and everything in between, right? But when you test a commodity across generations and continents, very few will emerge as good things to keep over the generations and continents. And gold through time rose to the top. And so that's why beads or, you know, these, you know, pieces of glass or animal bones or feathers can make for really good money in a localized fashion because it has scarcity, let's say even with, let's say less so feathers, but beads and or animal bones could be dur quite durable and last for hundreds of years also. So it's not just the durability of gold, right? There's durability, but there's also beauty. There's so many other factors that made this commodity rise up. So that's more of an anthropological study. But when you compare gold to fiat or balance sheet money, then it's, it's, it's night and day. One has an issuer and can de and have default and the other is not. It's something you have in your pocket. There's no default risk there whatsoever. So there's different uh, levels to analyze it at. Yeah. So it kind of goes back to that. I mean, it goes back to layered money idea. And then what makes, and this is, I think, a core concept in layered money, what elements of Bitcoin make it such a competitive, uh, have, have competitive advantages, I guess, versus gold? Um, and, you know, make it have competitive advantages versus other layers of the layered money stack? Yes, it does come back to balance sheets uh, and control. Now, you know, the devil's advocate of Ethereum points to the Ethereum Foundation. And that, I think we can, you can summarize the whole argument there. Because yes, Bitcoin has a protocol that allows a decentralized node network to maintain, let's say not maintain, but monitor the supply. And monitor that the supply rules are not violated based off of the original protocol, which did come from a single place, right? The code of Satoshi Nakamoto that programmed a 21 million supply schedule, 10 minute average blocks, two week difficulty adjustment periods, and the hash rate adjustment, uh, the tar sorry, the target adjustment for difficulty every couple weeks, those rules did come from one place. But through time, we see that those rules are set in stone and are, like I said, not maintained, but monitored in that they're not violated. With the Ethereum Foundation, what we've seen is a willingness from the foundation to exercise force on the supply algorithm from, you know, mid life cycle. And that to me centralizes the commodity and removes the full commodity nature of that thing, that asset, whatever you want to call it. It might not be a banking liability in that there's no defaulting issuer right? An Ethereum token um, can be sold into the market and that's how its value is judged. But unless the protocol collapses and disappears, not collapses, but actually goes away, the network stops existing. That is not something that's eligible for default in that way. So I understand the argument that Ethereum is not um, a security that it's a commodity. I understand that side of it, 
but I come back to the supply and the control. And so what makes Bitcoin like gold and unique? It's the lack of balance sheet and the lack of center. And the rules of why it accomplished that are within Bitcoin mining mechanics. And, you know, to understand how that works, it all that requires is a, di a dive into Bitcoin mining to understand how a decentralized node network um, stays afloat. So one thing that you'd brought up in the book, which I never knew about and never thought about, and I would, I would guess most people not in your industry have never thought about, is that you know, one of the, I guess, critici criticisms that people will make about Bitcoin being potentially, let's say, the underlying layer, layer one, I guess, or layer zero of the monetary system is the fees and how the fees might go up over time. And, you know, people say the miners need incentives. I mean, this is very inside baseball in the Bitcoin community, I think. But, um, you know, this is just a common criticism or a thought that's brought up. And you brought up in the book, which I never realized, the cost of actually maintaining gold as the underpinning of the, the monetary system in the sense of if you're moving gold between central banks, it's not, you know, it's not fungible within 10 minute block. I mean, you're physically moving a ship uh, with gold on it with all the security that that implies and all the costs that are around that. So I thought that was just fascinating. Uh, and maybe talk about that a little bit, just because obviously the Bitcoin one is hypothetical um, for what that would look like as the, the layer zero of the, the monetary system. But the fees, I guess, associated with even just gold as the underpinning of the monetary system is not zero the way that I think, you know, sometimes like at, at least it's easy to think about the status quo as zero because it's just what you know, you're used to um, and anything new is some incremental thing. But yeah, that, maybe just talk about that because I thought that was a fascinating section. I I use this with my students this semester. I showed them an article, 2010-11, the Bundesbank, the German Central Bank, called New York Fed and said, hey, we want our gold back. It took them, it took them years, years to get the gold. So forget 10 minutes. It took them years to get their gold back. So that, I mean, it goes to show you final settlement of a layer zero money, layer one money, uh, non-balance sheet money, however you want to call it, is unprecedented. 10 to 30 to 60 minute final settlement is unprecedented. And it's because it's ones and zeros. And that's why we can do that because it's just ones and zeros. And I guess the transparency that's there too, because if someone's holding your gold, you're kind of, um, you're kind of at their, you're taking their word at the end of the day that, okay, the gold is actually there, that they didn't, you know, double spend it. You know, uh, another common thing in the Bitcoin world that is talked about, um, the, you know, you can't really double spend Bitcoin. There's like edge cases where, yeah, it's, you know, theoretically, like if it's the block's not confirmed or it, there are ways, I'm not saying there's no ways, so I don't want anyone to come after me for that, but uh, there are ways, but it's much more difficult to double spend Bitcoin. And you can see the balance in a wallet address. So even if someone is being a custodian for you, I guess, using the German central bank example versus New York Fed, you should be able to see what is your balance in this wallet you know, from anywhere. And I would add an asterisk there that you can really only truly do so with a multi-signature arrangement and not with a full custodial arrangement. A custodian can show you their balance, but that is not your balance. Right. Um, counterparty so, risk. There. Yes, there's counterparty risk, but there's also uh, leverage and there's also, you know, liability side of the balance sheet that, you know, they could owe that money or Bitcoin to another party. And if you're only seeing the balance, you're not seeing the liability side of the equation, which makes uh, the concept of proof of reserves, uh, it makes it fall short for a full um, guarantee on your balance. So what is the solution for that for anybody who's building, let's say, like a Bitcoin company? Um, you know, a proof of reserves has been talked about quite a bit post FTX. And even before that, people were talking about it. But 
uh, yeah, what is it, what it, you know, what would be the right way for a company to conduct themselves? That's a Bitcoin company to yeah, show so, that they actually have the assets that they're, yes. they're claiming. Yeah. So Wyoming and Caitlin Long is doing fantastic work. I know you've uh, probably seen what she's doing with her bank custodia. They've struggled on the regulatory front, but their model in terms of segregated Bitcoin accounts that are non-leveraged and by law uh, protect, you know, by law assigned to be non-depository, non-lending facilities. That's one way to potentially have an infrastructure for proper Bitcoin custodianship. However, Caitlin and even large exchange operators will tell you Take your take your balance off the exchange if it's not on there for trading purposes, because because it's so easy and low cost to custody your own Bitcoin. This is the way to protect your asset. It's not to fight for a good proof of reserves framework. Um, First, first you protect in terms of your own self-custody and how you're going to develop those tools, self-custody and multi-sig custody tools. Then you can work on regulatory framework. So it depends on your vantage point. Obviously, some are focused on one more than the other. But in terms of what I try to get across at my research firm, the Bitcoin Layer, and with our sponsor, Foundation Devices, with their Passport Hardware Wallet, you know, we think single signature self-custody um, is one of the best ways to store this asset. So I'm in complete agreement with you there on self-custody. I think it's, it, number one, you can't really do self-custody in this way, you know, with uh, any other asset class. Like it's like, I mean, you could have a safe, but that has many, you know, other issues associated with it. But Anyway, I'm I'm in complete agreement with you there. I'm just going to try to steel man this a little bit. So I'm going to ask you a couple, like, I think harder questions related to self-custody. Because, I mean, philosophically, I'm with you. And, you know, I, this is what I recommend to every single person that is in my life uh, who has this asset class. But my question is, like, I guess the criticism you get about self-custody is like, oh, your grandma is not going to self-custody, right? Or like, you know, your mom is not going to do that. Like, how how have you seen that play out in your personal experiences or maybe in in the the world around you whether it's with students um and yeah and is there you know a path forward i mean i know you you work with foundation as a sponsor um so i'm just kind of curious how you know they might even address something like that yes so uh there are a couple things there firstly self custody is not that difficult I understand that, you know, grandparents are not going to be as capable of doing these things, but self-custody, it can feel scary, but it's not. And with the right help, you will pick up the technology as quickly as you pick up a smartphone technology. So it's not hard. Now, on the other side of that, both grandma and fiduciaries, they self custody is not the ideal. Uh, it's not the ideal setup, right? Because as you're older, you're focused more on multi generation storage of that Bitcoin. Hopefully, you know, hopefully you're buying it for your kids and your grandkids. And if you're a fiduciary, your job is to protect the money of your clients, not custody the money. And it's actually probably in your fiduciary responsibility to have a third-party custodian. So to your point, custodian services and the infrastructure is still essential for long-term global Bitcoin adoption. And I do see, when you see, listen, uh, exchanges go under like FTX 
And then you have Binance, which nobody knows what's going on at Binance. I don't have any comment here or there to say that Binance is uh, a fraud or that Binance is fine. You know, literally no comment there. But you have these players, but then you have Fidelity and Bank of New York Mellon introducing custodian Bitcoin products, even Northern Trust and State Street that are making efforts and Goldman Sachs as well from a custodian standpoint, not just a trading desk standpoint where you know that there's leverage and there's, there's um, you know, futures trading and all that arbitrage going on. True custodian services at giant trillion dollar giants that I promise you are not getting into the game so they can leverage your Bitcoin to make money elsewhere, but that are actually trying to have fully reserved custodial products for fiduciaries that fiduciaries can use that don't, you know, the concept of securities lending, they call it SEC lending. If you have a custodian in traditional uh, management and you don't sign an agreement with them to prevent SEC lending, they can take your securities and lend them out and make money on the short side because you didn't, you, you, you know, you basically authorized that type of activity. So, Fidelity and Bank of New York Mellon, if they have custodial products and they have like a non-sec lending agreement with their clients, that's huge for Bitcoin global adoption and infrastructure. And that needs to happen. But at the same time, I can still tell my audience and my readers that self-custody is something you should explore and it's not that tough. Go for it. And Try it with $5, then try it with 500 and then try it with 5,000 and then try it with five Bitcoin. Don't, don't just do it without understanding what you're getting into, but familiarize yourself with the technology. I'm really looking forward to the episode that I'm going to do on the Bitcoin layer with a, a trust attorney, someone who's a, a Bitcoin advocate, a self-custody advocate. I just want to explain to people there are a lot of implications from self-custody, but here they are. And, you know, let's get into it because um, setting up an, you know, a Roth IRA or a 401k, um, social security benefits, private pensions, and uh, life insurance policies, retirement planning, all of that takes time also. And there's a huge infrastructure behind it in terms of your retirement planners, your tax attorneys, your trust attorneys, you know, all the bills that people have to pay to set these things up. It's not easy to do that either. So Bitcoin is a technology. It requires a little work. But, you know, to answer your original question, Neil, that's still why we're early here. Right. And that's why not everyone does it yet. Yep. That's... <laughs> That's great. I have, um, that was such a good answer. I, I need to like make a clip about that on Fountain and share. Like, and anytime anybody asks me this question, I'm just going to send that clip about why, uh, you know, why self custody isn't scary. Um, and why it's, you know, I think, and there's to your point, we're so early, this infrastructure that already exists around all these other kinds of accounts. You know, you could definitely see an end state where that exists in Bitcoin. It's just, you know, we're not there yet. People have to build those solutions uh, and those solutions are built by people. It's not, it doesn't come out of the box with right. Bitcoin. The average, uh, the average person might bury gold coins in their backyard or keep them in a safe in their home. But the Bundesbank has to hire the New York Fed to store their gold because they have too much of it. And they don't have the vault to protect it against, uh, you know, theft or whatever they, you know, assign the risk to. So Bitcoin has to be thought of in a similar way. Yeah. And the cool thing about Bitcoin also is there's implications for you as an individual. There's implications for central banks. But I think the layer that we haven't even talked about, and I don't even know if we have time to touch on it on this episode, is companies. You know, companies are some already hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet and need custodial services or need need solutions, whether they're going to self-custody or not, um, to to hold that Bitcoin too. In the same way that you brought up the central bank example, I think it's it's actually equally important for companies. And it's actually interesting that you 
it's actually interesting and also a, a potentially huge, you know, I'm not giving anybody financial advice or anything, but it's, it's just so um, such a cool time to be alive that you can have access to this same layer zero money as a central bank or a company. I mean, it, that's probably only happens during transition periods. I mean, you know more about this than me, but to have that ability, you know, and, and, and I guess part of it is the fact that the fact that it is ones and zeros, that it is accessible to anybody around the world. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a fascinating time. Every time I think about Bitcoin as a technology, it's just like you get more and more excited about it. Yeah. And, and you bring up uh, companies, right? So let's talk about Shell or a, a major uh, energy company. We see these major energy companies announcing Bitcoin mining operations. Yep. They understand there's an arbitrage, there's an energy arbitrage there. They want to get involved. They don't want to get left in the dust. Do the Shell shareholders hire the Shell management to custody Bitcoin or to do oil and gas exploration and oil and gas production, they, you know, they hire them for their energy expertise. Right. And so the shell management, if they mine Bitcoin, invest in those facilities, mine Bitcoin, and then lose Bitcoin due to a hack or loss, those people are going to get fired because they were not hired to do that, right? And so there is a division of labor here, you know, from all walks of life. And that's why I recommend people get into self-custody because you don't have to assign the division of labor as a person looking after your family. You can take that responsibility, but there's not, it's not always applicable. So you do have to understand that companies are going to hire custodians because their shareholders believe that the management needs to hire out for expertise. Like you don't, you don't hire your own auditors, right? Your shareholders don't pay you to audit your own stuff. And so it's that you have to think about this division within corporate and institutions that custodial services are part of that. Uh, it's part of that build out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I know we only have a few more minutes. One thing I do want to get into, uh, if if you're open to talking about it, is kind of the Bitcoin adoption path that you see, and that you know, I guess you know we're sitting here talking about this being a better form of layer zero money uh, than what exists today. But how how do we get from you know what is the the potential path? I should say you know not you're not a fortune teller, um, but I guess how do you see that playing out, and then a related question or a related topic, which if it's related to to this area, you can get into it. If not, we can uh, and you know skip the question. Is just nation state adoption, and you know we saw El Salvador. Um, you know how does that play into? If we think again about like the layers of money, the thought came to my head that if you're on a if you're a lower or I guess a worse ranking money uh, is what your country has. Is there like a game theory esque aspect where you can just be like, okay, I can switch to Bitcoin and now I have a better money uh, that you know I can leapfrog, I guess, other nations. So, just the I guess if that relates to the Bitcoin adoption question, uh, we can get into that as well. It does, and I I like your leapfrog theory. It the only thing there is that you cannot you cannot leapfrog an entire economy by introducing Bitcoin, what you can do is you can attract the activity in order to pass other yep. economies. And so Bitcoin adoption isn't going to automatically lead nation states to prosperity, but it's a powerful leapfrogging potential, gives you powerful potential there. It also gives... Um, the multipolar world thesis, a tool for execution on that front. So if you're looking at the world from Latin America or Africa, and the United States has been pulling you for decades, and China has been pulling you for maybe 10 to 15 years, and you're going, you're going in each direction. And, you know, Yellen went to Africa recently and Xi Jinping went to Africa recently. And so there is a fight over allegiance. 
and there's a fight over unipolar versus multipolar. And that fight exists within geopolitics. And Bitcoin can be a tool, and I believe this genuinely from each side, like the United States saying, look at us, we're pro-Bitcoin. Obviously, politics doesn't have it framed that way right at this moment, but I do believe that U.S. is very much a pro-Bitcoin country, uh, despite what's going on here in the last few months. And that um, the China is not a pro-Bitcoin country, but a nation that's feeling the pull from both sides might say, hey, you know, I need to hedge myself against the United States and China fighting with each other. And I need to introduce something that has more of a multipolar bias to it, like Bitcoin. So how do I see Bitcoin adoption? Slow and steady on our path to a billion people, you know, over the next several years. And nation state adoption, also slow and steady and attracting business and being a tool in that multipolarity environment. Um, I had a, a conversation with uh, Alex Svetsky a few weeks ago, and we talked about he'd written an article, um, which I can send you after. It's kind of very much in line, actually, with what you just said. His is more on the individual consumer level, less about nation states, but about um, he, he has like a 60 year theory of Bitcoin adoption. Uh, and we're only kind of in, you know, we're so early in that we're in like what year 14 right now. Um, and his, you know, he kind of draws on the fact, like, you know, even for scientific theories in the past, it's usually, you don't convince the old guard of your new theory. The old guard dies out and a better theory kind of is able to take over through that. And so his point was like, you know, we're in this stage of Bitcoin right now, we're in the infancy it's probably going to be not even our children. It's probably going to be our grandchildren's generation where this is just like a fact of nature that Bitcoin exists and it's this, you know, form of money. And it, it, it's it's a very interesting article and I, I recommend it. Um, but it, it changed my perspective actually a little bit. You know, it makes you pay a lot less attention to the day-to-day -day price action. I mean, you might still pay attention, but it's it becomes less of a thing uh, when you think about it from a longer time horizon. And so, yeah, I mean, these things don't happen overnight. Yeah, you know, walking through uh, the streets of cities around the world and seeing Bitcoin stickers on the on the traffic yeah. lights, it it does send chills, uh, you know, down my spine because you you get the sense that this is going to play out over many many decades, and we're in the beginning stages of this global branding. I was in India uh, a couple months ago and I saw, uh, and I know India is not the most crypto friendly uh, nation, but there is a Bitcoin ATM in Delhi. So that was super cool to see. <laughs> yeah, I might have, I might have driven past it. What part of town was it in? Oh, Do you remember? I'll have to pull it up. Yeah, I'll have to pull it up. Yeah. Yeah, I, I but, mean, I saw, uh, I saw a couple when I was in uh, New Delhi as well in November. Yeah, I don't think there's many, but there are a few. I mean, you know, in New York, there's they're all over the place. But I mean, even in India, not very crypto friendly nation, it's uh, it's they're still seeing some, which is but and it also is it it brings home the point that this is not uh, this is truly global in nature, right? It's it's not a you know a U.S. thing only. It's not a Western government thing only. I mean, it's a it's a global thing and. And I actually think there's probably more to gain even in the in the countries that are, you know, maybe maybe India is less in this category now, but like the African nations, Central American nations, um, countries that have historically, to your point, been like bullied by one of the poles or the other. Uh, yeah. And, and kind of can't need a mechanism to kind of be a little more independent. And nations. One more last point about nation states, the nations that are bullied externally, but don't have that necessarily the biggest internal bully are likely to thrive. So you see that in Southeast Asia, countries like Thailand and Vietnam and the Philippines, not that they have these incredibly stable governments, but it's not like a, a Modi who's like turning the country into a, you know, or it's, it's leaving, let's just say, India is losing a lot of its secular nature and has over the last several years. And then you have China where you know what the Chinese Communist Party is going to do. They're going to come in with sweeping laws, bans, etc. 
some of the nations like that are less likely to boom in terms of the people using it. But in countries where the people feel empowered and don't really feel subject to their leader, but actually have some uh, freedom to do as they please, like we see in Nigeria, weak government and uh, the people have an energy around entrepreneurship and technology. And so you see the adoption rate, you know, of Bitcoin, you know, skyrocketing yeah. over there. So those are the countries to watch. Fascinating. Um, I know we're close to time. Would love for you to, to talk a little bit about what you're doing in terms of Bitcoin education, obviously through Bitcoin layer, but then even what you're doing at the university level. I think it's, it's so interesting. Yes. Yeah, so people can check out everything that I'm working right now on right now at thebitcoinlayer.com. We have a free weekly newsletter and a free YouTube channel podcast that people can go check out. And we talk about Bitcoin adoption and we analyze Bitcoin through this global macro lens. So we talk a lot about the economy and financial markets as well. I'm an adjunct professor at USC Marshall School of Business. I've been teaching a class on interest rates for four to five years, and I'm now teaching a new Bitcoin elective. And uh, like we were talking about before we came on air, structured higher ed in Bitcoin is not something that I had ever done before. It was a thrilling experience, and I'm excited to keep teaching Bitcoin in a university setting going forward. Nick, thanks so much for for joining me on the show. It was uh, it was a really fun episode, and um, I mean, I feel like I personally have clarified a lot of these questions that I had even after reading Layered Money. And we'll link to the book in the show notes. Um, we'll link to Bitcoin Layer, uh, as well as some of the other things that we've we've spoken about here, like some of the articles. Um, and as, of course, I think following you on Twitter is also a great way to get in touch with you. You're, you always post pretty uh, fascinating stuff there. Thanks. Yeah, I'm at time value of BTC on Twitter. Great handle. Even though sometimes Twitter, like I'll, I'll start typing your name to tag you in something and it doesn't do a good job popping you up when I say, you know, Nick, and it just doesn't just doesn't show up. I have to put time value of BTC. <laughs> yeah. Well, what can you do? Yeah, quirk of Twitter. They'll, maybe they'll fix that at some point. Um, but Nick, thanks so much again. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to spend with us here today. Of course. Thanks for having me on, Neil.